Section 21 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 Cellar. Cellar, the early home of a Queen of England that was not to be, Sophia Dorothea, is just such another Browning town as Hamelin. As Joseph Leopold and I drank our coffee and munched sand cushion over a red-checked tablecloth in front of the best and smartest inn of cellar, patronised and sealed as its respectable own by the Automobile Touring Club, as we sat in the hostelry at Hamelin with signed firmans and framed mandates of that powerful company on the walls, I felt for all the world as if we were under the same dignified auspices as at Tours or Evreux in France, or Warwick or Ludlow in England. And later on, when we had penetrated farther into the smug little town of Cellar, and found the old florid out-at-elbows family hotel, with its heavy gilt cornices and fusty rep hangings, one thought of the old coaching inns at Sandwich in Kent or Annick in Northumberland. The difference was that whereas even the distant Northumbrian inn had brought itself painfully up to date with separate tables and exiguous portions, served and delivered in an attempted French style, the German hotel ordinary was still early Victorian in amplitude and mode of cooking and serving. We all sat at one long table with tourists, sportsmen and commis-voyageurs. And whereas in England, when replete, that is to say quite stuffed with sawdust, you sally forth to visit the ill-restored cathedral or the hopelessly ruined castle, in Germany there is nearly always a Gothic cathedral or church well left alone and in full working order, and a schloss in as good repair as it ever was, with a roof on, and a well that can be used. And if you look for it in England, there is generally a museum, but you don't look for it, you don't want to. You know too well what you will see there. A few vases, a few geological specimens, some section of Saurian, a model of a mine of a ship of a town hall, and perhaps a Saxon altar. But in cellar, at any rate, you have not to look for a museum. It is large, new, spick and span, and planted opposite the entrance to the castle. It is a very fine museum, very airy, high-pitched and light, and not nearly so tiring to go over as most museums. I think it is the dust that one imbibes that so fatigues. And where everything was interesting, well shown, and cleverly placed, I fixed my attention on what I shall never see in England. Though I have seen it in Provence, where the inhabitants of a show-place are educated as they are in Germany, and take an intelligent interest in their own town and their own pasts as citizens. For in France, the Ministère des Beaux-Arts, in Germany, the state, in one form or another, steps in when something in the way of local historical evidence is disappearing, and buys it up, puts a moral fence against vandalism round it if it is not transplantable, or if it is, 
moves it bodily to a museum. In the Alotron Museum at Arles, there is the entire reconstruction of a Provençal mass, furniture, waxwork, figures and the rest of it. In cellar, the society has done even better. There is no papier-mâché idolon of the mouldering lodge of the past, but the actual farm. Two actual farms bought up and placed in a museum there. And there they are, two peasant houses, farms of a date certainly earlier than 1640, though the model remains the same, the very needy woodman's cottage, with its little light shining through the thick impenetrable forest to guide errant princes, huntsmen and clever tailors to a shelter, plank down, lock, stock and barrel, in the lower hall of the cellar museum. We see three out of the four walls, like a grown-up doll's house, stained with the smoke from the big fire in the very centre of the earth floor, and the cook and the great pot slung on it. The real household utensils shining bright are hung on the walls, and the effigies of many hams hang from the rafters. It has been used, this room. Families have lived and died surrounded by these walls. In the inner rooms are their sleeping arrangements, shut in and curtained close, all of them, so that no air-loving Englishman could sleep in such a hot bed. The little candle of legend that flings its light on a naughty world and calls in adventure, and sometimes misfortune, from the wide waste, stands against a square window on a shelf, so that it may be seen as far as possible, and at the very least tamely light the good man home. And to exemplify the fact that the German peasant farmer chose, and I believe does still choose, to have his ox and his ass and everything that is his, or his feudal lords, within doors at night, the buyer is next to the Stube, with only a door between. The patient beasts, the farmer's day-long companions of the furrow, are gathered into his peace when all their work is done. No distant, defenceless stable for these good servants, and stumbling pilgrimages over the rough cobbled yard at night by the light of an ineffectual lantern for him, roused from his slumbers by a summoning moo or whinny. I can imagine scenes like a nativity by Rembrandt, the good man sitting by his fire, surrounded by his family in the one room, among the flickering shadows and watching, with the sleepy paternal eye of the shepherd, the oily rafters of the stable and the dung floor that reflects no firelight rays, listening, though he cannot see in the dim penumbra, to the patient ox nosing at the props of his stall. And on Christmas Eve, when, as the legend says, these humblest servants of all are granted the gift of speech, in remembrance of the Christ-child who once deigned to lie in their midst nor scorned them, I can fancy some Mädchen or Junker, aware of the wonderful miracle that may even then be passing, leaving his warm place in the light and stealing into the dim stable to listen to the beasts that speak then and then only 
on that night of memories. And having lived with the peasant a while, we came away and attuned ourselves to the greater finer life of the prince. The Schloss of Seller is just opposite the museum. In the old engravings we see it with a full moat and four large tourelles, with sprightly flags flying at the four corners of all of them. It is difficult to realise the defensible nature of this old building, now that the flanking towers are gone, replaced by ugly, shapeless yellow buttresses that seem to lean up against the main fabric rather than support it. The moat is filled up, occupied by peaceful shell walks and low scrubby trees. An old man who keeps chickens is custodian, and his daughter shows you round. He is an old army officer, his military services have been thus rewarded. That is the way they save the government's money in Germany. Instead of giving a pension to a retired military man, he is appointed to a nice soft place such as custodian of this kind, or he is made a railway station master. Footnote. It is the way they do it in England too, or what a Hampton called Palace and Chelsea Hospital with their rooms and appointments for servants of the state for. This, in fact, is the way international comparisons get written. A German officer, A.D., gets a pension like any other officer, and although every railway official was once a soldier, that is only because every male German is or was once a soldier. The railway services belonging to the various states may be entered by any officer on his retirement from the army, and if, like Major W. Dash, whom our author has frequently mentioned, he be a skilful engineer, he will be employed to build new railway lines and may become in time chief engineer of one of the great systems, which is, of course, a very good post. But the same career is open to any civilian, after he has performed his two or one years military service jlfmh end footnote inside there is no sign of rack and ruin the whole place gives the impression of cheer ease and comfort it reminded me of some old chintz covered lightly papered english country house there is plenty of faded tapestry of a french character hung on the walls of the lower rooms and covering the sofas in the upper ones the old paper still hangs on the walls and it is generally a chinese wallpaper such as one sees in english country houses with pagodas and strange long-tailed birds flying about among the twisted boughs at the very top is the theatre a round arena built into a square apartment. The chapel is down below, and there is Caroline Matilda's pew, where she sat and mourned her fall, and the Duke of Sellers' great pew, where his daughter, the other discrowned queen, must have sat and worshipped in her happier days. It was not far from here that she expiated her errors, if errors they were, and lived for thirty years as Princess of Alden. 
Sophia Dorothea's enthusiastic biographer, the late W. H. Wilkins, found his way to Alden on the marshes and gives a picture of it in his book. It is not very like a castle, it is more like a courthouse, which I believe it is or was used for. It reminds me too of a fortified Northumbrian manor house or rectory, such as I saw last year at Embleton and Elsdon. It is situated in an unhealthy low-lying marsh, so Mr. Wilkins told me, and flat it is for all the world like a piece of Cambridgeshire. From his description, I used to make myself see a characteristic scene, in spite by my knowledge of the curious tick Sophia Dorothea had for furious driving, a long low road stretching out over flat marshlands for six miles and crossing a little bridge at Hayden, and over this road, in an open carriage in all weathers, a lady with black hair and diamonds in it drives furiously backwards and forwards as far as the bridge many times in the day for thirty years. An escort of cavalry, their drawn swords flashing with another sheen than diamonds in the low light, rides always behind her. But no one, either in Hanover or Cellar, seemed able to tell me anything about Alden, and I had to give up the idea of seeing it except with the eyes of my head. It was only another schloss. Germany is studded all over with them. Germany would seem to have had more potentates to the square mile than any other country. I never realised, till I had lived in Germany, the true incidents of Prussian hegemony. A kingdom may occupy no more space than a good-sized pocket handkerchief, yet it boasts a schloss or palace in which the owner lives, or not, according to his fulfilment of the pact with Prussia. The Duke of Hessen-Darmstadt has a large patrimony, and plenty of other places, and his palace at Gießen makes a very useful barrack. The Prince of Lippe is Lord of a Spring, so he has instituted a cour. And as for architecture and appearance, palaces and schlosses are all different. Biberich, for instance, is like an English country house, a pale yellow mass of buildings built round a courtyard. Cellar was once fortified, as I have said, but it is so no longer. Hear what Caroline Matilda, the English princess, who dragged out her last weary years of banishment at Cellar, and prayed for resignation in the chapel there, said about the palaces she saw as she passed through Germany on her way to take up her royal state at Copenhagen as the wife of Christian of Denmark. I found her remarks in a little French version of her memoirs that I picked up on the quays in Paris. She was an alien, but hardly a desirable one, so her mother-in-law said. She seems to have had plenty of spirit, until they broke it for her in her country of adoption, beheaded her lover, the physician, and imprisoned her, till our ambassador, Lord Keith, insisted on taking her away. She wrote, she read. She had quoted Hamlet in England, apropos of her intended marriage, to be 
or not to be that is shall i marry christian and this is what she says about the sauvagerie of her father's german relations every two or three leagues so she avers we seem to pass into the territory of a different sovereign sometimes i went by without even discovering that i was in the capital town of yet another princeling there they live these counts and barons of the holy empire in tumble-down castles with towers and turrets and which they can only afford to half inhabit they all brag of their illustrious ancestry and when once i had seen their wretched places for myself i was able to believe their boast since it was plain they really had lived in them from time immemorial there's more comfort and elegance to be found in the country house of a londoner than in any one of these dreary abodes hung with rotten tapestries where some serene highness or other dies of ennui though he lives in all the pomp of a monarch with a suite people called écuyers grand écuyers high chamberlains and all unpaid unquote. she was evidently as the custom was put up for the night at some of these dilapidated residences or at any rate taken to the owners of them for she speaks contemptuously of their women quote, sitting inanimate in their own drawing-rooms like the wax figures that are kept at westminster unquote. and we went on to osnabrück where a stage of the other hanoverian tragedy was enacted for when sophia dorothea the wife of our first george lay on her deathbed in the castle of alden she raved she denounced her husband the king of england and she wrote or dictated so the story says a letter to be delivered to him after her death and the same story says that it was delivered nine months afterwards to the king when he landed on his biennial visit to his other less important but more darling kingdom of hanover the receipt of it brought on the apoplectic stroke that he did not recover from moaning and crying out the red puffy unwholesome little old man put his head out of the carriage window and passionately urged the postilions forward osnabrück osnabrück he mumbled as his faculties became more and more bemused his brother was bishop of osnabrück and he wanted to die in the palace there he knew he must die a fortune-teller had assured him long ago in england that his wife's death would only too surely herald his own it is hinted that sophia dorothea's own span might have been shorter and her existence made less tolerable if this superstitious idea had not taken solid root in the mind of george he was a mass of superstitions and his spirit kept its word and visited the duchess of kendal that is kielsmansegger the lady whose yellow cloak sophia dorothea had mocked after death she was used to swear that into the window of her room at richmond a white dove flew and that it was the ghost of her royal lover 
the shabbiness, the vapidness, as of an old, battered, tattered, two-shilling yellow back novel of Osnabrück, struck me to the soul. And yet we stayed in it, in a mouldering hotel, very big, very vast, with enormous rooms opening through tall, oppressive folding doors into other enormous rooms. We slept in little, cheap, iron bedsteads that sneaked in the corners, leaving vast, unoccupied spaces of moth-eaten carpet, where a bed with a baldachin and tester should have reared its proud head. I was very glad it didn't, though. It was impossible to eat in the hotel. There were only two restaurants in Osnabrück, and they were no better, qua food, than the hotel. Only the table linen was clean and mended. It was a city of desolation to me, but yet it was a handsome city. It had parks and walks laid out on the ramparts, and two churches and a bishop's palace, the palace that George tried to attain to but did not. There was nothing to do there. There was not even a cinematograph. One night we went to a smoking concert in a beer garden, and heard miners sing through a long interminable programme. And yet they sang very well. In the afternoons we walked along one of the three straight allées laid out on the ramparts, and stared at the queer reticent old bishop's palace on the other side. One of these three allées had a board up, bearing the words, Only for old ladies. Another was, Forbidden to old ladies and the third was reserved for cavaliers. Footnote. I do not believe that these notice-boards ever existed. Our author was probably hypnotised into seeing them by the English belief that such things exist in Germany. Of course, many notice-boards exist in that fertile and regulated land. In almost every public place you will read on one seat the words only for children, and on the next, forbidden to children. Perhaps once in Brunswick City, there was an ober-tribunal procurator whose children put out their tongues at an infirm but disagreeable lady-in-waiting to the serenity. Such things happen. Then, to avoid scandal between these important functionaries, to avoid court intrigues, the fall of ministries and possible revolutions, the benevolent prince would order that children and old ladies should be separated. And very sensibly, too. J.L.F.M.H. in footnote. There was probably some reason for this, but I never discovered what it was, or in which allay I was to walk. Supposing I, as an old lady, wished to visit a cousin at the end of the park, in company with Joseph Leopold, Supposing I needed the support of his stalwart arm? It could not be done. I should have to walk in the allée that was only for old ladies, he in that forbidden to my kind. And the whole allée reserved for cavaliers would be between us. End of section 21